Let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. I'm looking forward to what we've got uh, to talk about together tonight. So uh, I'll pray to open us, and I'll have somebody else pray to close us. Lord Jesus, thank you for this evening. Uh, I thank you for each one of these people that are here tonight and for the opportunity to talk about leadership development, Christian leadership development, which means to lead in discipleship, to lead in the formation of the church, to lead in spiritual formation, spiritual relationships, and what it means to love and to serve those that are around us. And so help us tonight, Lord. Help us to learn, help us to believe, help our character to be changed and our actions uh, to change, Lord, that we might see sanctification, uh, the process of growing more in Christ, work out in our lives uh, week by week and year by year that over time we might see more of the work of Christ in our life and then in our families, in our church, and in our community. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. 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 All right. Um, Well, let's see. I'm going to start out this evening with talking about the absolute importance of personal devotions and personal spiritual growth. So throughout this semester, we're really laying some of the foundations. We're going to get more into uh, some of the teaching aspects of things next semester. But if you don't have a foundation of spiritual growth in your life and spiritual formation that continues to grow spiritual formation in your life, then your teaching will stagnate and then ultimately your godliness will fall off into some form of disaster. And so there is absolutely no substitute for personal daily devotions. And I have known people that, you know, know a lot about the Bible and maybe started out at some point with great godliness and an earnest spirituality, and it just, it just fell off over time. And we have uh, direct addressing of this in Revelation, and I can't remember which church it is, but it talks about how, you know, you used to have a great love for me, but you don't anymore. So stir up that love and return to your first love. Ephesus, thank you. If you have an earnest personal love for Jesus, you will have a daily devotional life. So somebody talk to me about what are devotions? What is a daily devotional life? What does that mean? Consistently being in God's Word. Okay, consistently being in God's Word. Now, does that mean just, all right, I read a section and I'm done with that, so I can check that off and go to the next thing? No. No. Um, What does it mean, Rick? Prayer, reflection, meditation, reading. All right. Prayer, reflection, meditation, application. application. God, what do you want me to do today related to this? What does this have to do with me? And all of this points to the personal relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. Depending on a person's background or your background, if you either had a a, a very difficult relationship with your father or no relationship with the father, Um, or perhaps grew up in the Roman Catholic Church or some other very duty-based, legalistic church, sometimes devotions are a very hard thing because you just can't break out of or you've never understood what it means to have a wonderful, personal, uh, communicative, meaningful relationship with your Father, and so it's hard to bridge that gap to the Heavenly Father. But our devotional life is absolutely important, and there is no substitute for it. There is no godly pastor, small group leader, or father, or mother anywhere in the world that has no meaningful Bible reading, prayer reflection, application on a very regular basis that is making real spiritual growth. And so 
You think, wow, you know, how do some of these things happen with these atrocious stories that you read about in ministerial failure and all kinds of things like this? I guarantee you that every single one of them had long ago stopped having any personal devotional relationship with God. Because you cannot desire to sit down and be with God every day and read His Word and hear what He has to say and have His Spirit convict your heart and then react to that and get too far away. Because God disciplines you. He convicts you. He brings you back and directs your life. And it is absolutely divine how you can progressively read through the Scriptures and have God speak to your heart related to that day from the scripture that you're reading that day. God's word is the word of the Lord, and it's amazing how that works. Talk to me about some of the hurdles and struggles of having daily devotions. Jacob. So recently having a newborn. (laughs) Yes, that's an excellent illustration. So talk to me about how that's been a struggle. Before Sarah came along, I had a very, it seemed like we were just like, flying i was i was getting up every morning at five before i had to leave at six thirty. and yeah five to six was my devotional time i'd eat take a shower leave go to work and then right before bed me and bethany would have a devotional time now i'll give you an example this morning i woke up at six thirty. i had to be on the computer at seven because yeah. i was too wiped out and i just read hebrews 7 where it talked about how jesus is my personal intercessor and i'm like Jesus, I need you to intercede for me today. So, yep. <laughs> and it was like, I, didn't, I didn't have time to yeah. to sit down and do what I used to do, but yep. that was like all I could do for today. You know, and so this is what I, that is a wonderful illustration. And, uh, when you have your first kid, it rocks your world in these things, if you were a Christian before that. But it, there's always something like that. But I want us to take note of 2 Timothy 2.15. 2 Timothy 2.15 says this, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15. Now, there's many different applications to this, but it is definitely Paul speaking to Timothy about growing in an understanding of the Word so that you have a right understanding of the Scripture so that you can handle the Scripture properly. There are definitely people that totally abuse the Scriptures, pull things out, have all kinds of craziness going on. But what I want to point out here related to personal devotions is the do your best part. That's an important little phrase. To, that's, you know, doing your best uh, one month after a baby's been born is different than doing your best when all the kids are out of the house or you're single or whatever it may be. There are always trials and struggles in life, but we should each one be striving earnestly to do our best within the situation. And God is patient. We learn patience from God. God is patient with us. He understands what is going on. Now, I mean, you have to take an honest look at your life of, am I organizing and structuring my time in a self-controlled way to put Jesus first? That, is this really the most important thing in my life? And I know that uh, all of us are imperfect in this. I am imperfect in this. But I can tell you, earnestly, 
I strive every day to take hold of the day, whatever the day is, to make sure that there's some time with the Lord. Like I said, this past weekend was not an easy weekend. I mean, there was, it was bell-to-bell craziness. And so uh, late last night, I was like, oh, you know, I'm sitting here. I hate sleeping on the couch. But I, I, I would rather sleep on the couch than on like this bare foam bed. It was, it was just a mess. So woke up this morning, you know, and it was just tumble out into the day. But I also find, and you will find, that the Lord is gracious, which means he will make available. Like something will happen. There will always be time for the Lord in the day. And something happened this morning where I had an, an additional 30 minutes between dropping off Luke for school and having to in, go to the office. And there's a great little coffee shop right there next to where I drop him off for school, duck in there, you know, spend 30 minutes reading the scriptures and prayer. And, you know, and in that, now I'm a big believer. And I think at some point, if you're going to enter into Christian leadership, especially uh, in some significant role, you've got to read all the way through the Bible on a regular basis. It doesn't mean it has to be every year or every, but it needs to be regularly. If you can say like, it's been 10 years since I've read all the way through the Bible, or I have never read all the way through the Bible, you cannot stand up and teach in any significant way about a book that you've never actually read. Okay, so we need to say that. And so I I love, um, I have a, uh, like a a reading list, a daily, you check this thing off. So this particular one is on our, it's on the website. It's called the McShane uh, Daily Reading Plan, and it has four, four passages. So you've got two from the Old Testament, two from the New Testament each day, and, you know, I work my way through it. So today happened to be Psalm 37, and, you know, on, on a day like today, you know, Psalm 37 um, is a beautiful psalm. And an important psalm, and it has to do with fretting and being, you know, upset with all the things going on in the world. But it ends with this, Psalm 37, 39, and 40. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. That's a, that's a, that's a very important truth to remember when things are just all over the place and you just feel like, all right, I need to, I need to rein this thing in because this, is, this has not been, my heart's not where it needs to be. And the Lord uses his word in that way. Um, so doing your best. It is good to have regular aspects of discipline, but no matter how much you try to hone in certain amounts of discipline, it, the, the plan will go to pieces. But that doesn't mean you don't spend time with the Lord that day. It's something you're always striving for, always angling towards, whether it has to be late that night or you cut out something. You have to spend time with the Lord. 1 Timothy 4, 14 through 16. Someone read that for me. 1 Timothy 4, 14 through 16. I believe this should be part of the goal of personal devotions. 1 Timothy 4, 14 through 16. Somebody, that for me. All right. Uh, verse 14. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take plans with this, take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do, 
This will be, uh, this will assure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Okay. Verse 15, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that they may, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. Persist. Interesting words. Practice, immerse, close watch, persist. These are, these are things that relate to perseverance, that relate to discipline, um, for the purpose of making progress, and progress that is to such an extent that the people around you can see the progress, the spiritual progress in your life. If you are regularly and daily with the Lord in a way that is real, it will be transformative. You cannot read God's Word every day, prayerfully, with reflection and seeking application, and not learn about God, start believing new things about God, have your character be changed, and your actions start to change. It will be the engine of these things taking place in your life, and it will start to become evident to other people. And they'll say, man, I see, I'm encouraged by spiritual growth that I see in your life. And I, mean, I can say that for basically every single one of you in here. As I've seen you come along in the year that I've, uh, year or years that I've known you, and it's encouraging to see spiritual growth in your life. Um, so somebody about that. Any, anybody, any comments on that? First Timothy 4. So I think with that, with that spiritual growth comes spiritual opposition. Okay. you wouldn't say persevere. That's right. And I think once we come in and say, we're going to do this, every opposition comes. Yeah. And it could be the smallest things, not even the biggest things. It is. It is. It is. Practical can of worms that I can open up here. Sure. Uh, I think that you have to plan for success. I agree. Like you have to set yourself up. Um, you know, like there's a lot of things that you do. You know, like for me, I find it helpful to close my study time linked with something else that I'm going to do anyways. Right. Mm -hmm. So I like to study after I make my coffee because I'm always going to make coffee in the morning. Mm hmm. I agree. Very much agree. Very much agree. And people are different. Who in here is a real morning person? All right. Who in here is a night owl? Okay. So I'm a night owl, not a morning person. So I, I, like, I like late nights. It tends to be like everybody's quiet and the world's kind of slowed down. The phone has stopped dinging and all that other stuff. But other people love getting up early in the morning. I'm not going to tell a person that is a night owl that you must have your devotions first thing in the morning because it just sometimes it just that's not the best fit for them. Um, but I attaching it to things that make sense with you also like I I, I like um, I like looking out a window. I don't know what it is with me. I, I I just I have my desk set up at home to be able to look out the window. It just helps me think more clearly and. Setting up a, a, an environment that is more conducive to focus for you, less cluttered or less, uh, especially less uh, 
broken with interruptions. You have got, you could not have a conversation with another person with three people interrupting you continuously. You can't have that conversation. So you've got to mute your phone. You've got to put it in your bag. You've got to ask people around you to give you some space or something like that so that there can be some uninterrupted time with the Lord as much as you're able to, to accomplish that. And you are striving to create the environment where you can have an uninterrupted time of devotion with the Lord so that you can connect. And sometimes, uh, this is from George Mueller, you know, he would say, oh, I'd pray and pray and feel like I'm just not connecting with the Lord. He said, so I'll just start reading the Bible. And I agree with that. I, I don't, for me and the ADD mind that I have, I don't just start with prayer. I begin with some aspect of prayer. I think we should always say, Lord, open your word by your spirit to help me understand what is here. Uh, you know, bring these things to my heart that I need to hear today. Those types of things where you're earnestly seeking the work of the Lord in your heart. But after that, for me, I dive straight into the scriptures and the scriptures shape my thinking for the day. They, they are a washing over whatever's going. Sometimes it's conviction. Sometimes it's encouragement. Sometimes it's teaching. Whatever it is, the Lord uses his word in my, in my heart. Other comments from, from you about personal devotions? I think the more that you're involved in personal devotion, you stray away from that first line in verse 14 of neglecting your spiritual gift. Mm-hmm. Because reason that you would neglect it is one you just don't feel confident in mm. it, or the enemy is going to intervene and distract you from that so if you're more devoted and absorbed in it and people around you see that they're going to be encouraging you in yeah. that direction as well and you're kind of forced not to neglect it that's right kind of yeah. Aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. what Jeff? I, I kind of like an accountability aspect sure to some and, yeah and encouragement and just yeah the thing about devotions, though, is very few people know whether any one of the rest of us are involved with personal devotions. That's because it's a personal thing. And so there's got to be some aspect of personal um, awareness of saying, I have not done this in a long time. And usually if you're married, it's going to come from your spouse hey, you are off, you know, something, you know, you need to go pray some or, or you know, Lord needs to work on you some. And, and usually that's like, all right, you, you, just the first thing you can point to is I have not been with the Lord in personal devotions. So we come right back around. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we enter back into his presence and we enter back into his word and we, we keep making progress forward. And so the progress of sanctification in our life is not a nice upward line. It looks a lot more like the stock market, you know. And if you've seen the stock market lately, it went like this. And it's come back up. But it it keeps going back up. And the Lord will always finish and complete and keep moving forward the work that he's begun in your heart. But it is definitely not a nice, easy, straight line. And so we keep striving in personal devotions. So in the framework of what we're talking about here, there is no Christian leadership without spiritual personal devotions, without reading of the word, without prayer, without consideration, reflection, application on a constant, regular, daily basis. If it's not a part of your life right now, it must become a part of your life. Everything we're going to talk about beyond this is just not going to work. 
You can go to Bible college, you can learn a lot of things, but if you have, if you have no personal devotional life with the Lord, it is just not going to come together. And so this is essential. All right. We're going to transition from here to talking about outlining Scripture. Outlining Scripture. So when you are a... When you're leading in any type of spiritual way, you have to be able to teach the Bible. And I very much believe in teaching the Bible in an expositional way, which means chapter by chapter, verse by verse, a section of the Scripture, not coming up with a thought, choosing a Bible verse that you think is interesting, and then doing what various people have said. Either you treat it like a coat hook that you hang all your thoughts on that verse, or as a diving board that you dive off that into the pool and swim around in your own thoughts and then get back out. That should not be what we use Scripture for. We should be expounding or explaining the Scriptures for what they are. Now, you cannot explain the Scriptures to anyone if you don't yourself understand what is there. And so the very first aspect of your study in teaching a passage, I believe, should be to outline the passage or break down this passage so that you understand what is in front of you. And I think the first way of doing that after just reading the whole thing, this is what I do. And so uh, this is a wee little whiteboard, uh, but I will do the best I can to make this work. I had to order a bigger one. We're going to do 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. So part of your reading here in this semester is to eventually read through 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And so we're going to work our way through, um, and tonight we're going to outline these first 11 verses. So if you had to teach this, this is what I would suggest that you begin with. So what are the first two, what are the first two verses there in 1 Timothy chapter 1? Okay, to so be more specific. Okay, so number, verse 1 is Paul. That's who the letter is from. It's from Paul. So we're going to put Paul here. Okay, who is Paul? Apostle of Christ Jesus. Okay, so we're going to do like this. This is the great thing. If I, I do this on paper a lot, but you can all the little tabs and word is just fantastic. So Paul is an apostle. I'm not going to write out every word, but uh, of Christ Jesus. All right. Um, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. So he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. And there's various ways of doing this. I'm just going to show you the way I do this. So it's also by command. And the command is of God and Christ Jesus. Okay, so that's who it's from. Who is it to? Timothy. All right. What do we know about Timothy? What do we learn about him from here? Paul's challenge Okay. And what else? What's the next part? A benediction. Yep, yeah, I would say a greeting. That's a greet. It's a general greeting. And what are the aspects of that greeting? 
Grace. Call them out. Mercy. Mercy. What's next? Peace. Peace. Okay. That's your, that's, your, that's your first step there. So if you're going to teach this, this is what you're going to teach. Who is Paul? So you're going to have to, don't assume anything about the audience. No, don't assume that anybody knows anything about Paul. So you're going to say something about Paul. What does it mean to be an apostle? Something about an apostle. Uh, it's a command. So we're going to probably say something about what's the difference between a command and a conviction. Explain what a command is. Who is Timothy? Do we know who Timothy is? Yes, we do. We know who Timothy is. And there's all kinds of references to Timothy in the Scripture. So give some background on who Timothy is. Why is he calling him a child in the faith? What does that mean? I explain what that means. Greeting. Why do Christians greet each other with grace and mercy and peace? You say something about that? That's, that's, that's how you teach that little section of, of, of Scripture there. And um, let's keep going. Let's do uh, 3 through 11. How, what do we get into here? Start reading and help, tell me how we break this down. Okay. It talks about more of the setting to which he's supposed to, like, give the commands or refresh the command to the people in uh, Ephesus. Okay. Yep. Okay. So, so we're going to Ephesus, or he's he's speaking about Ephesus. I urge you, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. So he is urging Timothy. To remain at Ephesus. So, I can't do this sideways. If, uh, so, he's, he's, he's urging Timothy to remain at Ephesus. For what purpose? Okay. To warn against false teachers. Um, so specifically, not to teach a different doctrine. No false doctrine. Myths. No myths. Genealogies. It says endless genealogies. Yep. And you don't necessarily have to work all that out at this point. This is what he's trying. He's warning against false teachings, and this is what it is. The false doctrine, no myths, genealogies. You're, you're working these things out here. Uh, speculation. speculation. Okay. Uh, rather than stewardship from God, which is by faith, the of our charge. So this is what he's not doing. And you could put various things in here. So I'm going to put this here. This is what he's not doing. And this is, this is the positive. This is what he is doing, should do. And that is what? Okay. 
Interesting. So there's supposed to be love. You're going to note that's a theme in the Scriptures. We're we're to be a people constantly related to love. I'm definitely going to have to get a new whiteboard. Okay. Love from a pure heart. A sincere faith. A good conscience. Okay. Okay, then we're going to go to certain persons, other people swerving from the faith, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or what they're doing. Um, Okay, so this is going to be a warning Yep. Okay. Uh, turning aside. And what are some of the key words used about turning aside there that are interesting words? Well, I think it's very interesting that you just told us this is why we're doing devotions. This is right here, desiring to be teachers of law without understanding. Yeah. Right? No understanding. It's a meaningless talk. I'm getting too low here to do this. Um, It uses the word um, wander, which is a very important word. Uh, They're wandering away, making assertions about things they don't have any business talking about or they have no grounds for confidence. So then we get down to the next part, which I'm going to run out of board space, but it's a, it talks about the law and the purpose of the law. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, for the lawless and the disobedient, but for the, the ungodly, and it goes through and gives this long list of who the law is for. The ungodly, sinners, the unholy, profane, those who strike their fathers and mothers, murderers, sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God for which I was entrusted. So we would break down that passage related to the law and what the use of the law is for. When you get done with this, you should have a pretty clear understanding of what verse 1 through 11 is for. So, you know, let the cat out of the bag. This is what I do for every single sermon that I preach in this place. This is where I start. I do this every single time. And I've got legal sheets of paper. I like handwriting. That's just me. I do whatever you want to do. But um, if you don't start here, where are you starting? You know, I mean, what, what, are, you, what are you doing? If, if you don't start here, you're just diving into something that you think is interesting about the passage. And Oh, I really, I really want to talk about, you know, uh, whatever um, speculation today. Or I really want to talk about, I really want to talk about love. I like talking about love, so I want to talk about love today. So, well, what is, how does that relate to anything else that's going on here? There, Paul is writing this in a in a flow. It has logic to it. It has a persuasive build up to it. 
It reaches conclusions. And these are all things uh, given to him by God's Spirit to be taught to us. And so strive with every passage of Scripture that you teach to break it down in a clear way that you can understand it. And after you have done this, then you begin to think about, all right, how much time do I have to teach? What is my audience? I mean, do I have a bunch of people that fall into one of these categories that are definitely, I need to, to be aware of my audience. I, I've got, let's see, people that love to have fruitless discussion about things that don't matter. Or maybe I've got some you know, people in the congregation that are dealing with sexual immorality. Or maybe uh, I've got a loveless group of people that have a hard heart and I need to talk to them about how we are supposed to have love. We're supposed to be pursuing this with an earnest faith, explaining to people what a good conscience is and keeping a clear conscience before the Lord. There's all kinds of ways you can, directions you can go with this. Um, I, after outlining something like this, start to write these thoughts down. Things that, for me, the amount of time that I have and the audience that I have, what should be said about this? And my sort of initial pass as to what I feel like ought to be said there. Now, that's if I understand this. If you outline this and you're like, I have absolutely no idea what this section is talking about. Or there's a bunch of cross-references. Say it's a passage that has a big Old Testament quote in it. Well, you had better go back to the Old Testament passage and do the same thing with the Old Testament passage to make sure that you understand the Old Testament passage that is included in the New Testament passage, you're going to bring these two things together to have the best understanding that you can possibly have about what's there. If there are characters in here, just like we said before, there may be plenty of names that you don't know who, I don't know who this person is. Well, this is the wonderful help that we have in study Bibles today. If there's a little number or a little letter next to that person's name, you need to go down to the bottom and look that person up, because there may be a number of things about that person in the Bible that you don't know about. Don't skip it because you don't know about it. Study it and learn it. If you don't have a great study Bible, we'll be glad to give you one or go get one, um, because if you're teaching, you, you need to know what you're talking about, and if someone asks you about it, you need to do the very best that you can to understand the Scriptures accurately. Now, at some point, um, you're going to do all that you can do. And sometimes it's, it's less, sometimes it's more, but at some point you also need to go hear what somebody else has to say about this that's further down the road than you are, and that's what a commentary is for. You do not start with a commentary. Yes, ma'am. Can I Please. ask you a question? So you say that every sermon you do, this is the general perspective, yes. you take, right? So then how do you always decide where you're going to go? And let me give you an example of something you did. Okay. So when you preached through First Peter a year ago or something, yep. First Peter 1 2 references the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And you spent two to three weeks preaching about just the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So what made you say, okay, I'm gonna because you could you could do a week on an what is an apostle, and then you could do you could you could be in you could. in first Timothy one, one through two for a month if you wanted to be. Yes. So so what makes you in that instance say, Okay, I'm gonna take three weeks and I'm gonna talk about the Holy Spirit. This is a prayerful aspect of your choice as a teacher. So I was negatively affected as a young man by a pastor that spent three weeks talking about every single line. 
I mean, it would take us six months to get through what is on this board. And I, some people, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of Martin Lloyd-Jones, and that was sort of how, I mean, I think Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 500 sermons on the, the book of Romans. It took him like 10 years to preach through the book of Romans. Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones is exceptionally brilliant and uh, an incredibly godly person that has lots of good things to say about very small things, and you can actually read lots and lots of those sermons and still be captivated by what he's saying. That is a rare person. Uh, usually when we go so slowly through the scriptures, I think that some people would say, this is terrible, you shouldn't say that. It, I, I don't know how to answer that question, Matt. For me, I look at my audience, and for us at that particular time, there were certain uh, doctrinal things we were working through related to the Holy Spirit because of some charismatic or some Pentecostal folks, I should say, that were in our congregation, and I think if I'm right, that we were working through the, the music decision as to what we were going to do with certain aspects of music in the church, and that related to certain aspects of people's views on the Holy Spirit, and I felt like I needed to spend some more time on that. And so, if I feel like there's a weakness in doctrinal learning or understanding in the church related to a certain thing, I'm going to spend more time on that. Uh, I definitely don't do every single verse in a sermon because to me that's much more of a teaching commentary than a, than a sermon. Because at some point I got to get to what you were saying earlier about you need to say what are we doing with this and teach people how to go live their life related to that. One of my great goals in teaching in this way though is for a person to be able to walk away from what I've just said and say I understand how he reached that conclusion and that I can read this passage and understand where that came from, which means a person can then go read the Bible for themselves and make progress themselves in their daily devotions. And that's huge, because I'm only going to give you a little bit of spiritual learning here, and I want you to go take that and spend more time in the Scriptures. And if I jump from this verse to that verse to this verse to that verse to this verse to that verse, it's the opposite. A person says, I will, how could I ever understand how they reached that conclusion, because that is so convoluted to me. And it actually, I think, causes people to close their Bible and say, I, I'll never be able to understand this. So hopefully, whatever I'm teaching from that passage helps that person understand that passage so they can then dive in further themselves. But it is definitely your choice as to how much you emphasize any one thing. I don't know there's a right answer to that, Matt. Other than you've got to be faithful to the text, but... I don't know. Is that? No, yeah, I, I was yeah. just curious because you, you know, you you could work through a forty verse. I'm not saying you specifically. Yeah. A global, you could work through a forty verse chapter and be fine, or you could hop on one verse and you could stay yeah. there for two or three weeks. So, is there yeah. just didn't know if there was a reason as to why you choose one particular verse or topic? And it makes sense if there's something else going yeah. on, and you know. You want to kind of get at that underlying truth a little more. Like some of the things we talked about earlier tonight, you know, I need to spend some more time there. If there's, if there's something that's a weakness in the church, I need to spend more time there. Um, it's not helpful. We talked about this last week some. We train to our weakness, not to our strength. So a church loves to hear more about what it's already strong in. It's like throwing red meat to the political base. That's, they already love what you want to say, so tell them more of that. And so I 
common thing. People come into this, this church and we say, we believe in the authority of the Bible in this church. And they say, amen, brother. I believe in the authority of the Bible too. And I almost always say, well, I need you to believe in the authority of the Bible also in areas that you disagree with the Bible. And so there's going to be times, prepare yourself, when I start talking about something that you may not have heard or you disagree with, and I'm going to ask you to submit to the authority of the Scriptures there as well. And that is when it really, if there's definitely something that is a hard thing, I mean, every single time the Scriptures talk about sexual ethics, I harp on it in here because our world is shot through with sexual sin right now. It is the number one ethical failing, I believe, in our culture today. And probably always, which is why it's in the Bible all the time. And so we cannot quickly pass by that and not address it, even though it's hard and it's going to speak to particular things going on in this congregation when you do it. So that's also a part of it. Okay. What are you looking for when you consult a commentary? What are you, why are you consulting a commentary? Any? Exactly. If you go read somebody that you know is a very godly person and their understanding of what you thought you understood is wildly different, then that's a problem. And so you need to go maybe read a second person, see, well, does that person also agree with this person? And it's not that we're trying to get, you know, check the wind as to which way the wind's blowing, but you can definitely miss things. And you also want to make sure you haven't missed something significant. Like there's some some aspect of the passage that you just missed. And, you know, there's some reference to some Old Testament passage or some future prophecy that is a very clear thing here. You just missed it in your study. You don't want to do that. And so it's helping to backstop what you saw with what other people have seen. And, um, you know, reading more commentaries is not necessarily better because if you ask, you know, four theologians about a mysterious, difficult passage, you're going to get five different opinions, I and mean, it, it, it can be overdone, uh, but it, it should be done. You should invest in, we have, we have commentaries in the library, and we can order more. So if you are teaching in a setting in this church, and you feel like you don't have any outside commentary on that, we'll get you one through, through the budget of the church to help you know, like, be able to read at least one other person's opinion and understanding of the passage. And that's important. So, and I'm always amazed by the insights. I love commentaries from days gone by, from godly people's works that are still in print 100, 200, 300 years after they lived because Christians for hundreds of years have felt like this person had some amazing insights into the Scripture. Um, personally, when I'm preaching, I have like three commentaries related to that book of the Bible, and I keep going through those three. I don't have 10. I don't have a pile. For, for me now, I love the pillar commentary as a modern commentary on Acts. I like Calvin's commentary on Acts, um, and then I also like uh, uh, R.C. Sproul's commentary on Acts. There, those are the three that I, I tend to go to in, in the Acts. What qualifies as a commentary versus... It just it goes straight through the book. Anything that is commenting, commenting progressively through a book of the Bible is a commentary. So um, if somebody would walk over there and grab the, um, 
the R.C. Sproul's commentaries are back there. Just grab the, the, his R.C.'s uh, Romans commentary off there. It just goes through. You can just look it up. Go straight to this. All right, I'm going to turn 1 Timothy 1. Here's 1 Timothy 1. Here's what this person has to say about it. Well, I guess the specify, like the writer of the commentary, like they're all different writers. They're all going to come up with different things. So how can you, um, I mean, in good faith. How do you trust this person? How do you know who this person is? Yes. Uh, that takes some doings. Um, it takes knowing who, who is trustworthy, who's not. Uh, ask somebody like yourself. Ask, ask people um, that you trust. There's no end to the publication of books in our day and age. I mean, it is a for-profit industry, and so the more books, that, more books they publish, the more money they make, and so they will keep publishing books, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's worth reading. And so I think the number of people that, in any age, that are really gifted commentators, some of them are very intelligent but not very good communicators. Uh, personally, I'm not a fan of verse-by-verse -verse commentaries, usually, because, like, you don't, this is a letter. It's, this section is written as a section, and some of the points being made don't just fit in one verse by verse by verse by verse. It's, it's, a, it's an argument. So the commentaries that I like the most approach, you know, blocks of Scripture as they are written and bring conclusions related to the thoughts that are there. But you do whatever you need to do. Um, about it? Oh, okay. Yeah, let's bring it on over. Yeah. So this is just one um, from RC. This is good. But uh, what's this? Ephesians? Yeah. He does his in that method that I said. He, d he does not do verse by verse, but, but section by section. Um, and you can tell that these come from sermons that he preached, that they've been transcribed into this as he preached the same thing with uh, Calvin's commentary, same thing with John MacArthur's commentaries. They were sermons that were transcribed into commentaries. So, All right, I want to take too much time on that. Um, other, other questions specifically on what it means to outline a passage like this. Does this make sense? Okay. All right. All right. I'm going to try to squeeze in before we hit our break at, in about five or six minutes, another aspect of something that I think is really important, which is how do you read a book? And that sounds dumb, but last week we talked about the necessity of reading and that to be a, a teacher and a knowledgeable Christian, you must be a reader. You must be a person of the book. And then, of course, I didn't bring my book in here. Um, well, yeah. Let, let, me, let me take this one right here. I don't have mine. Uh, I'll bring it in afterwards. But let's, let's start with a few basic things. So when you are looking at a book, like Andrew's question, is this a good book or not? Is this a good commentary or not? Stuff is published all the time. So the first thing you're going to do is look at the author, because the author of the book matters far more than what the substance of the book is. And so who in the world is J.I. Packer? And you go and look this person up if you don't know who they are. If you see some interesting book on some subject that you think is important, the most important thing to do is look at who is the author of this book. And if you go in the back and you find some crazy thing that they're a member of some, 
you know, heretical denomination or they're not a Christian at all or something like this, then that's a huge warning sign that this is not a book that I want to read. If I come to the back of this and find that knowing God is written by a Mormon, then that's a problem. But, or if it's written by a Roman Catholic or if it's written by, I don't know, whoever you may say, the longer you get into it, you're like, all right, it's going to have this slant to it or it's going to have that slant to it. Figure out who the author is. Um, then you're going to read whatever it may have to say uh, by other people. So there are always recommendations in books. Who is recommending this book? If the longer you get into Christianity, oh, Jacob, I just lost your place. It's okay, All right. If the longer you get into Christianity, you start to understand, like, these are some trusted authors, and of seven people in the front of this thing that they could get to recommend this book, you don't know a single one of them, that's also a warning. That's, that's a concern. If this is published by a, a, a well-known publishing house, this book uh, is published by Crossway. You can look at the publishing house too. Crossway is an excellent Christian publisher. They publish a broad variety of trusted books within a Christian orthodoxy. They're the publisher of the ESV Study Bible and ESV Bible in general. Um, I'm not saying that a book published by an unknown publisher is a bad thing, but I always research it more if it's published by a, a company that I've never heard of. There are some books that particularly publish uh, very Pentecostal works. There are books, publishing houses that publish for particular branches of Christianity. And if you see that publishing house, you can know, all right, I'm getting ready to get into this type of book most likely. And you open up, look at who recommends it, and sure enough, it's like five health and wealth prosperity gospel preachers from uh, TV, then like, run. Like, thank you, that's all I need. I'm not interested in this. Now, you may be interested in it for some research purpose, but life is so short, don't read garbage. Read good books and consider those books. Unless you are trying to learn something specifically about something that you know is unorthodox. You're going to have me use the word orthodox often in this, in this class. What does orthodox mean? Sound doctrine is going to show up in this passage. I think it was down near the end. We didn't quite get to it. Sound doctrine, which means right teaching about God. Orthodoxy is agreed upon right doctrine about God that has been agreed upon by Christians for thousands of years. That's sort of your first order doctrines, your doctrines that make you a Christian. And when a person is outside of orthodoxy or says, I have discovered something new about Christianity that no one's ever understood before, run. That there, is no, there is no new thing to be discovered about God. We are holding on to truths and trying to preserve them from being lost and then expounding them in our day that their life might be brought uh, to all of us to understand. I'm getting off track. The next thing you want to look at is the table of contents. What is this book about? Is this something that I actually have interest in? So when we look at the table of contents here, we see this book is about knowing the Lord, beholding your God, uh, if God is before us. And actually, I would kind of give Packer poor marks for his titles of the, each chapter. They're kind of witty and interesting, but you can't learn a whole lot about this book by reading the table of contents. Um, I like books that are just more straightforward with what is in this chapter. So sometimes you have to start reading the chapter to actually figure out what the chapter is about. 
even though the chapter has a title. And that's not necessarily helpful. But you can also learn a lot about a book by looking at the table of contents. Okay. Um, read the introduction. Many people skip the introduction to a book. I think that is really unfortunate. The preface to this book, the original 1973 preface, is outstanding. And it tells you what is the author trying to accomplish in this book. And that's really important. That he, This is why I've written this book. And it gives you an understanding of where you're going in the book. And if you get this far of looking at everything I've said and you finish the preface and you say, this is really not what I'm looking for, then you can save yourself the time of spending weeks diving into something that you know doesn't really get you where you're going. If you say, man, this is great. This is good publishing house. Looks like a great author recommended by people that I know and trust. I read the preface. It really draws me in. I'm going to go read this book. So you start reading this book. I cannot... I mean, I am so in this groove now. It's like I can't read a book without a highlighter around me. If I start reading a book, I just I have to go, like find a highlighter because you need to mark up your books. And that's how you will be able to reference the books that you have. And it helps you to say, oh, man, this is a really good point. Um, that doesn't mean you, you mess up your books. It's a pet peeve of mine when I get a used book and it's like a third grader highlighted and it's just like they just... Ah, went all, you know, you're not trying to ruin the book. You're trying to annotate the book for your future reference. I strongly encourage you to create your own index in the back of the book. And I'm going to pull mine in here to, to show you what I've gotten so far. I take the inside white flyleaf of the back and if something is important to me, uh, there were some sections on the Trinity and idolatry. I will write... Idolatry, page this. Trinity, roles of the Trinity, page this. These are the things that mattered to me about this book. And what you will do with this book is you'll then finish this book and put it back on the shelf. And then one day you'll be doing an outline and it will have to do with the Trinity. And you'll say, man, I remember that book by Packer had that great quote and section in it about the Trinity. And you can go to your bookshelf, pull this off, open it up, page 72, boop, there it is. And you can just pull the quote right out. And it is so fast and so productive for being able to immediately reference something that you may have read 10 years ago, but you knew it came from that book. And you can go and look at your own index in the back to quickly reference that item. And so make your own index in the back of the book. I'm going to throw it under the bus here because we laugh about this all the time. Don't continue reading books that don't turn out to be what you want them to be. My sweet wife is a rule-following person. And if she starts a book, she's going to finish the book. And she's going to read every chapter of it and tell me, this is a terrible chapter. This book is so bad. Why is this book so bad? I'm like, stop reading it, babe. Just close it up and put it on the shelf. No, I, got, I got to keep reading it. And she'll read the whole thing. Don't do that. You may not listen to me like she doesn't listen to me. But it is, life is too short to read bad books. So. I just plowed through a bad book this week. <laughs> you, can't, you cannot finish it. You how do you do it without wasting too much time, Matt? You just, you got to get through it. <laughs> I'm not that guy. At least go quickly through it and not waste too much time. I get the three-chapter rule. I read three chapters. If it's not after that, it's on the shelf. Now, this is where the index comes in for me, too. Because there may be, like, this section I really want to learn about. And I go straight to that section and read that section. And then go to other places. I'm like, no, nah, this is not, I'm not interested in this and keep going. But uh, that's just an efficiency thing uh, for me. That's a little bit on how to read a book and get the most out of it.
Questions or comments? No? I'll read the preface. I like the personal index. <laughs> the personal index has saved me countless hours. And many of the quotes and things that you hear appear in sermons are not books that books I've read a long time ago, but things come back in through that index. So that's helpful. All right, we're at the bottom of the hour. Let's take a five-minute break, and then we'll come back and do some practical uh, aspects of ministry. All right, let's dive back in here. So one of the one of the also one of the practical things that I do for uh, I do the same type of indexing in my in my own Bible because uh, this is one of the reasons I like a paper Bible. And for underlining, I always keep a piece of cardstock in the back of my Bible so that I can. Um, I can underline and outline. Did you say a paper Bible? Yes. Like, because it's flexible instead of a hardback? Is that what you're doing? No, just paper. Just, just made a, instead, of a digital, instead of a digital. Instead of a digital Bible. Yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, just so I can mark it. I'm sorry. Just so I can mark it. And, but using that, that piece of paper, and you get some of these like archival pens that do not bleed through the paper, which are fantastic. Um, but then things you know, turn out nice and neat. And I always, I create my own cross-referencing. So if something is meaningful to me, I will write that cross-reference in the, in the, in the margin and do various other forms of indexing. So uh, for me, I think it's fascinating all the verses in the Old Testament that talk about the mercy of God. So every time I run across, as people love to talk about how unmerciful God is in the Old Testament, well, there's an ever-loving pile of verses that talk about the mercy of God in the Old Testament. So every time I run across one, I write it here. Every time I run across a verse that talks about God as creator in the Old Testament, I, I write it here and just kind of keep, this is totally, you know, this is just me. But um, I have verses in the back that are sections of verses that are for benedictions, for invocations, um, all kinds of, of just personal indexing in the Bible for things that have helped me understand the scriptures so that I can find them again later when I'm, I'm coming to it. And now my thing went off. This is why I hate digital stuff. See, my paper Bible never, never turns off. Hey, did you start recording again? I did. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to do, um, like I said, each week we're going to do some practical aspects of ministry. And depending on where God calls you and has you in ministry, you're going to apply these things in various ways. But if we can't, we, we go from this type of thing to very practical ministry. Practical ministry helps to work out these things into the body life of the church. So for our practical aspects tonight, we're going to start out by talking about visiting people. Uh, Matt and I were talking earlier tonight about being involved with people's lives and how important it is to be involved with people's lives. And there are certain aspects of the church, if you are a a pastor or an elder or a small group leader of whatever sort or a ministry leader over an area, you absolutely have to visit people. If you don't visit people, especially in crisis times of their life, you can lose that relationship forever. And so visiting people is very, very uh, important. Let's start out with the hospital and the sick. That is an essential part of visiting, and it is an absolute priority of the eldership of this church to try to visit every single person that is in the hospital. If you go to the hospital and not a single person from this church visits you and you're part of this church, that is going to be hurtful to you, period. 
And so if somebody in your small group is in the hospital, somebody needs to go visit that person in the hospital. Um, if somebody is very sick at home, and we can't all do all these things. Any one pastor that tries to visit every single person all the time, they, you burn yourself to the ground because you can't do it. And people that feel like the pastor must come visit me or the church doesn't love me, doesn't understand the, the body life of the church, that one person can only do so much, but we have to care for each other to come visit. Now, I will say, what is the struggle of visiting a very sick person in a hospital? You walk in and you do what? How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing terrible, Joe. Why are you asking me that? So what do you say? You walk in, the person's hooked to all kinds of tubes, looks horrible. What do you say? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly. What... Okay. <laughs> that's the struggle. Okay. So you come into the hospital room, and I, I got to tell you, you, you need to think through what you are going to do before you get in there. I think it is very important to role play some of the visitations that you do. What am I going to do when I get into this house? What am I going to say? Don't just walk up in there with no plan. Now, it may go very not according to that plan, but it's worth thinking about. What am I going to say to this person? Is this person deathly ill? Has this, is this person 90 years old with three types of cancer and is ready to go home to be with Jesus and you know that they love the Lord? That is going to be one type of prayer and one type of interaction. Is this person a totally unsaved person that's lived a rebellious hateful life towards God, that's going to be a different type of conversation. Is this person a 20-year-old that has just been in a car accident and the family doesn't know if they're going to live or die? That's a different type of visit. You had better know as much as you possibly can about the setting that you're getting ready to go into before you go into that and think about it. You're always going to be encouraging. You never want to go in with a sad, long face. And I'll tell you, this is a formative experience in my life. It caused me to go back to the scriptures and hash out what I really believed about healing and about how we ought to pray about healing. Because I was beside a, a bed of an older woman, I mean, probably in her 80s, and asked for me to pray that God would heal her. And I was like, uh, you know, it was way back in ministry, and I just, I had not worked these things out at all in my mind as to how I ought to pray for this. Does God love life, and is God able to heal people? Yes. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Do we see countless examples of it in the Gospels? Yes. Is it God's will that every single person be physically healed? No, no it's not. Does it mean that a person is ungodly or lacks faith if God chooses not to heal their body? No, no it does not. Now, so we go to God who is merciful, who is kind, who is loving, and is working, especially if we are confident that that person is a Christian, we know that God is working out a good plan in their life. He is working out His will in their life. And so we pray for this person. We always pray for the spiritual comfort and soul of a person. God, may they know your encouragement. May they know your strength. May they know that they're loved by the church and by their family. Now, Make sure their family doesn't hate them. If you know that there's so, things like this, I mean, be careful with what you say. If so, I had a coworker die a little over a year ago, and um, he came from a very uh, 
faith healing Pentecostal background, and he was definitely dying of cancer. And you know, one of the later times I went in to visit him, and he was down to skin and bones. And he said, you know, Vic, pray, pray that God will heal me. You know, I, I believe that God will heal me. I said, Chris, I shouldn't use his name. But he's, that's all right. Um, brother, you need to be prepared to meet the Lord. There's a time to die, and I'm going to pray for you, and God may yet heal you, but he also may not heal you. And you need to be prepared to enter into eternity. Let's talk about your soul. Are you prepared to meet God? And he was. He definitely was a Christian. Um, and I know that he is with the Lord now. We had a sweet conversation, and it was after that prayer. He said, I want you to preach the gospel at my funeral. And it ended up being an amazing opportunity. But you need to be prepared to, to face dying people. Mm -hmm. If you come in and a person is completely catatonic and comatose, and the family is grieving there, you know, what are you going to say in that situation? Understand, there are tons of stories of a person being able to hear you, even though they are not able to respond to you. Always pray as if that person can hear you because you don't know whether they can or not. So take all these things into account. But above all, if you come in and visit at all, that's a great thing. If you speak truth to them with love and kindness and mercy, that's a great thing. And you pray for that person and ask God to work in the situation according to his will. That is a great thing. And all those things are going to minister to the situation and to the person. Questions or comments about that? Did you start your phone again? I did. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay, cool. Josh. I, uh, when I was in my motorcycle accident, I had, I was switching churches at the time. Yeah. Um, and I had my old pastor okay. show up and my new pastor show up. Now, one of them um, came in. And they came and prayed a kind of haughty prayer. Mm. And the other one came in, asked if my mom needed anything. Yep. Took care of the physical needs of my family. And, and I, I, I stayed with one church, you know. Uh, and it, it was a big, you know, difference. And I had been to that church with that pastor one time mm. at the time. Yeah. Uh, and those those visits are very comforting. Right, yes. for, for lots of ways because you know I'm stuck in bed my family's upset there's nothing I can do about it yeah right I've been on this experience a bunch of times now in my life right yep. and yep. every time you know it's a lot of it's like lonely yeah I'm bored I don't got nothing to do right and sitting in a hospital bed for weeks or months at a time it's very right? hard and sometimes you just need somebody to come and be beside you and tell you jokes you know and yep. tell you that everything's going to be all right Yep. And, and be there with you, and it, and it means a lot when people do that. It does. Yeah, it does. I think people. Some people just have a gift for that, and others. So when you said, "What are you going to say? Like, how are you doing?" I got nothing. You know, I have nothing in my head. What yep. can I? Right. And it's sometimes it's a struggle to even say something, but I think people let the comfort that you're making the attempt is a is a big. I mean. The, the fact you walked through that door has already done volumes, it, right? It, is it just hard. matters. So we got to be willing to make that first step because, and, and use your listening, right? You yeah. listen, actively listening, right? Yep, but, that's exactly but right. If you walk through the door, you've already done it's, all It's that. a significant part of it. 
it's um. All right, let's keep moving because well, some of the other things say it's a new baby. You need to visit. You know, when somebody has a baby, you go visit. You know, now it's you, you never quite know. You don't want to be the first one there, and they may not want you there early, and maybe later, maybe afterwards. You know, I don't know what, but you need to. Somebody needs to go and and say something and pray for the child, uh, and that's very important. Um, you will come into situations where the child has some terrible sickness and illness. Yes, Sam. You just walk in the door. I mean, it is. I always call the person beforehand uh, or the family member to, to let them know I'm coming. I don't just show up, usually, unless it's an unusual situation. But and other than the pandemic, you do not have to schedule a visit. You just kind of go. It's amazing how open hospitals are. Uh, usually, they'll check you for a gun downstairs, but other than that, like you, you just walk in. So. Mm hmm. Get the room number from the family or friend or some, something and go and just go on in. So, yeah. Um, all right. Continue moving. We're going to run out of time. New members. You've got to visit new members that come into the church. You know, people that come into the church, uh, I think you should. We at this church, I love our new member meetings. Um, when we go and interview new members, uh, it's a special time to hear their testimony, to hear about their life, to hear about how their marriage formed or who they are. And those things are very important. So the eldership of this church does, some elder does a new member interview with every new member that comes into this church. And it's really important. Um, it's something that we have to make time for. Partially, to understand where their soul is and what's going on with them because we are in charge of or accountable to God for shepherding the church. And so if we don't have the time to sit down and talk to people and get to know them enough to discern the truthfulness of their Christian confession, then we've we got a problem. We're building a problem into the church by having unbelievers come into the church. But you can discern much about a, a marriage a person's soul by sitting down with them for a couple of hours and talking to them about how they came to know Christ and what's going on in their life and a way to pray for a person, connect with that person, so on and so forth. Hearing the testimony of a person. And I, I just say, tell me your story. Tell me how you came to know the Lord as your Savior. Um, I love to say, you know, tell me your story. Tell me, tell me about your life. And people will tell you all kinds of things about themselves. If you go and greet some random person here, say, tell me something about your story. Tell me, how'd you find this place? Who are you? And people will tell you all kinds of great things about themselves. Those in crisis, as you are a small group leader, a ministry leader, an elder, a pastor, you will have crisis phone calls where someone says, you know, my life is falling apart and I need you to come talk to me now. And it gets difficult when you have multiple of those in one week because it's, you have to have some boundary in your life to where you aren't always dropping everything to go run from person to person that's in crisis. That's why we have to have a, a plurality of elders and a multitude of spiritual leaders in the church that some of the youth are going to call Eric or their small group leader before they call me. Some of, hopefully someone in one of the small groups that you lead would, would call you perhaps before they call me, because they have a closer relationship to you. But in one way or another, the higher up the chain you go, 
the more difficult situations are going to come to you. Because when the really difficult situations come to people, they say, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know how to talk to this person. And it's going to keep getting elevated up, which is part of the reason why you shouldn't have a new believer or a newly married person or new something in the role of an overseer that's going to have to parse out some of these really difficult sin situations of, of just crisis. Tell me something that you think would be important coming into a crisis situation where you come in and you sit down with this sobbing person. What do you do? What, is, what are some of the first things that you think would be important to do? Pray. Pray. Always. Let's pray. God help us. This is a hard situation. I never start a counseling situation without praying. Lord, intervene in this situation. Bring your peace. Help us to have wisdom to understand what is going on. Uh, that is absolutely essential because this is God's going to have to intervene here or nothing good is going to come out of it. What do we do after that? Listen carefully. <clears throat> Ask questions and listen carefully. This is something that has, I was terrible at early in ministry and changed my whole aspect of all of this once I got into the FBI and learned how to ask questions and conduct an investigation. You are basically conducting an investigation. If you come into a crisis situation that you know little about or thought you understood and then suddenly it blows up in your face, it means you didn't really understand what was going on here. So you need to start asking some basic careful questions and start turning some rocks over and listen. Listen to what the people say. And you need to keep asking questions and keep listening until you feel like you have a good grasp on the situation. Don't just start talking. Don't start giving advice and pouring stuff out or it will not end up where you think it's going to end up. I mean, there are some times where it is. It's hours of questions because every rock you turn over is something that you didn't realize was there. Well, then that leads to this, which leads to that, which... At some point, you're probably going to have to say, all right, we're, we're going to stop here and we're going to talk about this, but ask questions and listen to what the people are saying. Understand that there are two sides to every story. The Proverbs talk about that. If you're hearing one side of a crisis situation and there's definitely two sides, like two spouses or two friends that are warring against each other or whatever it is, you need to then go out from that situation to do the same thing, ask questions and listen to what the other person has to say before you start drawing conclusions about what is going on in the situation. And sometimes that takes time. Part of the wisdom of visiting with people in crisis situations is trying to slow down the crisis if it's not something that absolutely must be dealt with right at this moment. If something has taken 10 years to build up to this occasion, it, it's going to last another couple of days. You need to pray for this person, listen, hear, do the best you can to, to lower the, 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 the tone of the situation, but then go out, ask other questions of other people, and start to put the pieces together. It's going to take time to undo something that took 10 years to bring it into that crisis, but you can at least start. Um, Greg, I'd love to hear anything you might have to say about this, in intervening in crisis situations.
be difficult. It is. It is. Andrew? Well, I'll be transparent. So when me and you met, one thing that really stuck out to me was the way, like, when, like, I was angry at my wife and I was upset and I could have taken a week to let you know every little thing about it, but at some point you had heard enough and you said, Andrew, enough. I got it. You got to move on. And it, whatever it was, like, I shifted gears. And um, I mean, it just really impressed on me. Like when you are in that moment, like you can, I mean, you can almost be a battering ram for somebody just trying to unload yep. um, everything. And, and you made it perfectly clear that that was not what you were there for. And I think we have to be careful. You come to that place when you have a firm understanding of the situation, when you really do feel like you understand the situation. Because we've all been in the, in the place where we're angry with somebody and we'd love to just run around that track one more time and say one more bad thing about that person and rehash that situation. And if you feel like that's what's happening, that's when you need to intervene to say, all right, I, I, I feel like I understand the situation. And that's sort of the last part of this uh, related to crisis intervention, which is what Andrew is saying. You speak some aspect of truth. It is right to speak truth in the situation. It can definitely be overdone. It must be done with mercy and kindness. I know that one of my personal faults is being too blunt with people sometimes, too much in their face. And that can be definitely overdone. But saying no truth when a person needs to hear truth is also not good. And so wisdom will help you find the path of what should be said in the moment. And I very firmly believe that in, in a crisis situation, you need to do the best you can to say one or maybe two aspects of truth, and that's it. You don't back up the the truck and the first load and tell them everything they need to hear about how to have a better marriage or how to have a better whatever, how to, how to fix their broken teenager. You need to say, all right, in the moment, I need you to focus on this so that they can come out of the craziness and, and look at one or two things that they can hold on to, and then you pray again. And you pray along the lines of the aspects of truth that will help them move in some way out of where they are to another, to a better place, to where God would have them to be. This is never going to be the only meeting that you have. You're, you're gonna, there's gonna be a number of other phone calls, a number of other meetings, um, each time praying that God will bring peace, that you keep asking questions, you do the very best that you can. Um, does this mean that everybody involved in this situation will be happy with how you handle it? No, it doesn't. Um, I think in humility, you need to do the very best that you can, but you will never make everyone happy. If you try to make everybody happy, you'll just wear yourself out because you can't. You, you, are, you try to do what is right with a clean conscience, said somewhere down here, a good conscience that you can walk away from the situation saying, you know, I, I, I did the best that I could with that. Learn from it, try to do better the next time, but that was the best I could do in that moment and pray that people will, will love you through that.
And you also find out that some people like to be in crisis. Yes. Um, so just, just be aware of that too. Yeah. Um, and I think again, the boundaries, you know, place in some healthy boundaries. Yes. Because yes. those people will be the ones that call you at midnight or because yep. they thrive on chaos. That is the practical <clears throat> rule that we will get to at some point, the 95-5 rule. Don't let 5% of your people take up 95% of your time because it will always be the crisis people that never seem to make progress and you will end up neglecting the people that can make tremendous progress by having 95% of your time taken up by the same people that are always in crisis. And that's a very important thing to remember. All right, well, in our last moments here, I'm going to hit one more thing. We'll pick up the rest of these next week. Be steady and predictable. Be steady and predictable as a spiritual leader. Um, I love a definition of professionalism that came to me not from the spiritual world but from another world. Professional is predictable. What does that mean? If you go in for surgery... Do you want a surgeon that's going to do something new today? <laughs> nope. If you, uh, I don't know, whatever you want to say there, a professional is predictable. They, have, they understand the fundamentals of what they are doing, and they stick to those things, and they execute those fundamentals with excellence. And so this doesn't mean that you're boring but it does mean, I believe, that people, for the most part, know what they're going to get when they call on you or come to see you. When people come through the doors of this church, they're not wondering, I have no idea what's going to happen today. This is, there's no telling what's going to happen today. They basically know what is going to happen in this place. And that's part, and the same thing with your small group. If you have a small group or youth group, the youth basically know what's going to happen here on Wednesday night. People basically know what's going to happen in your small group, and that is a good thing. Why? Because they're going to bring their friends. They love what's happening there. They, God is ministering to them in this situation. If they go and invite their very best friends, say, hey, you got to come to small group. We have a great small group. And they come to small group, and that night you do something totally off the wall and just bizarre, and they have to go and apologize to their friend because, oh, I'm sorry, that's, he's, Jeff's not normally like that. Jeff's normally a very a normal person. And, and Now, that does not mean you don't preach something from the Scriptures that is very convicting. But they're used to hearing you preach convicting things from the Scripture. They're used to hearing you pray with passion. They're used to maybe you crying at some point in it because you're, you're, like you're just really serious about what's going on. But it does, uh, this is also why we do not have, as, as certain churches love to have, the open mic where somebody can get up there and say whatever they want to say. I mean, it becomes very unpredictable. I'm not going to let anybody in this audience just come up and say whatever they want to say behind a microphone. Some churches love that, and they're all tiny because no one has any idea what's going to happen in the service that day, and people are very loath to bring their friends into a situation where they have no idea what's getting ready to happen. So I think that what we see out of the apostles is regular spiritual practice, regular discipline. Now God shows up and does all kinds of things that you may not predict. God does whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. And that's exciting. And that is never a problem, obviously. Um, so you may disagree with that a lot, but I, I think that that is an important part of, of being a spiritual leader. All right, we're at eight o'clock. So I'm going to cut us off. We'll um, 
pick up there next week. Who has questions or comments um, about what we've talked about tonight? We'll take a couple. Jacob. How do you, I, I've messaged you privately about this before, but like how do you deal with a person where it's like you're always saying the same thing to them? Like how do you cut that situation off to where it's like, you know what, I'm going to wipe the dust off my feet versus like, okay, yeah. this person really just needs me to bear with them because they're just really slow. Yeah. I think it partly depends on whether that person is pressing into your life, continuing to want to hear what you have to say, or you are pressing yourself into their life because you really want to tell them something. And that's two different things. Um, you cannot fix people. The sooner you learn that as spiritual leaders, the better it will be. You cannot fix anybody. What you do is you tell them the truth and you act towards them as you are commanded to act towards them, which is usually with love, mercy, kindness, speaking truth, praying for them. And you are acting towards them as you ought to act towards them. You cannot control their reaction to that and you cannot control at all what, they're, what they may do with that. So I encourage you not to press too hard into people. Once you have pressed into, once you feel called to say something to someone and you go and you go for a certain number of rounds and that person absolutely does not want to hear what you have to say, I think unless you feel truly you know, led by God's Spirit to keep going down that road, you should just let off. I mean, there comes a time where it's just better to go on. And they think there's strong precedent in the Scripture where people do not want to hear, they do not want to listen, so they move on to the next group because there are people there that do want to hear and do want to listen. And it's amazing how you can say the same thing to one person and they don't want to hear, they hate your guts for it, and you say the same thing to the next person and they rejoice and hug your neck for it. And so I think there is precedent that we, we keep moving to those that are, are good soil where the, the truth of the Scripture is going to take root and bear fruit. Does that answer your question? Yes, and I agree. But what if they keep coming around? It's almost like they're trying to get you to affirm them. Keep telling them the truth. Same thing. Keep telling them the truth. Keep loving them. Keep praying for them. You never stop telling people the truth. And I think that is a temptation in visitations, in crisis situations, especially that someone wants you to tell them something false so bad. You can't. You, should, you can never tell somebody something that's false. Ever, no matter how tempting it may be, you cannot tell something, tell someone something that's false. So, with grace and love and kindness, you got to tell them the truth, always. Any other? Anybody else? What's the hardest message you ever had to preach? Which one would stand out? It was kind of hard. I, I, oh, no, actually, I know. And I'm going to have to come back around soon. This is also related to something that Matt and I were talking about earlier. Because I preached about it about three years ago, and it's time to do it again. Preaching about gender roles in the church, and specifically calling men. I, for me, it's harder to call women to be what they ought to be in the home. Because our, our culture is so messed up in this. And calling women to love the home and to love children and homemaking is so passionately countercultural, and there's so many 
women that they have no love of home. They have no interest in children and they're, they're totally career focused. And to say you're missing what God has for you, and especially if, if you've got a family with kids and they're ingrained in debt and various other things and that for that mom to come home and love those children and be a homemaker is going to cause great um, life, like radical life change, that is a very hard thing. And you can look out in the audience with just hatred in people's eyes of what you're saying to them. It is a very hard message, but it's such a beautiful thing. And I have seen such radical, radical life change happen from people, from women. And it, also, it always takes the husband's buy-in. So it's a both, it's a two-side thing, but that is by far the hardest message in this day because it, it's very true. It's radically life-changing, and it's hard. So those, you put those three things together, and man, it's a, it's, it's a mess. And you but. probably can feel, I'm sure, people's love, like you said. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right, let me pray for us, and uh, if you have further questions, I'll stay around till, till you're done. All right, Sam, did you have one? What is the difference between a counseling session and discipleship? Okay, so there's a little bit of overlap there, but a counseling session is particularly trying to work through a problem to get a person through a difficult situation in their life. Discipleship is the overall process of growing in Christ. So it's the knowledge, faith, character, action loop. But sometimes people get stuck in that loop somewhere, and they need some intervention to help them iron out certain things, and that's what counseling is, in my opinion. So, so in the case scenario where um, someone, would there be a case scenario where counseling becomes discipleship, or would it? Counseling is a part of discipleship, but discipleship is larger and goes on for an entire life, mm-hmm. whereas if a person was in counseling their entire life, you've got a problem because that means you're one of these crisis people that is always in crisis. We should not always be in crisis. But all of us will probably enter through, go through some form of crisis in our life and need help from some spiritual leader to get through that time of crisis and back on the path of discipleship and healthy spiritual growth. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for these men and women. Lord, help us as we want to grow, uh, to grow in discipleship, as Sam has said. We want to know you in a personal and real way, Lord, that we might serve the church, that we might help those around us, that we might know you through your word, and in that, minister your word to other people in teaching situations, in home situations, in community situations, in crisis situations, in counseling situations. Lord, that your church might be strong and not weak. Lord, fill us with the love of Christ that we might know you, and then fill us with the love of other people that we might press into their lives to know them and help them and serve them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.